glad everybody's uh, coming back. Um, everybody doing okay? Good? Yeah? Okay. Awesome. Great. Okay, let's, uh, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Um, God, thanks so much for this time. Thank you for uh, your people and uh, how you have redeemed us and, uh, and brought us to yourself. Uh, and Lord, you have not left us to try to divine your will or to um, uh, just talk about you with kind of aimless uh, speculation, but you have given us your word. And uh, Lord, we depend on that. We, uh, we draw from it. Uh, so, Lord, in this time, as we're talking about how your Bible is put together uh, and the history behind that, I pray that this wouldn't be for the sake of uh, critiquing or standing in judgment of your word or picking it apart or, or certainly not questioning its uh, authority or reliability, uh, but just so that we know uh, a little bit more about how you have sovereignly directed uh, the construction of your word to, to where we have uh, a, a faithful witness today. And so, Lord, I pray that we are able to, uh, to think about issues of textual reliability, textual criticism, and translation, and how that works, uh, and even get some insight into how we should think about the, our own translations that we use uh, so that we can uh, more faithfully wield the Word of God, hide it in our hearts, and get to know you better, and uh, follow your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, this is part two of a conversation that we started last week. Uh, on how we got our New Testament. And so we'll broaden that out a little bit to, to, to how we got the Bible in general. But we're still talking about the New Testament. So uh, I want to pick up where we left off last week. We, we, uh, we established that early on, uh, the manuscripts, or not the manuscripts, but the, the books that we recognize as canonical, the ones that we say are uh, God's word to us, authoritative. The letters of Paul, the general epistles, what we, the general epistles, not the Pauline epistles. So the generals being things like uh, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, uh, Peter, 1st uh, and 2nd Peter. Those are the general epistles or the Catholic epistles, uh, the Gospels. All of these at a very early date uh, start to be recognized by the church as authoritative. Now, not every church has those. We I showed you guys a little map. Uh, where you, you, you've probably got a lot of diversity in which, uh, which uh, epistles and gospels end up where initially. Like you've maybe got an Antioch. Uh, and the church in Antioch maybe has a gospel of, of Matthew uh, and uh, the letter of James. Maybe uh, James is in Jerusalem as well. Maybe a copy was made. And uh, in the church in Rome, they're passing around copies of the book of Romans and uh, Peter's epistles and Mark. Uh, and so you've got a need for uh, the Word of God, which is being recognized in the New Testament writings, in these epistles that the apostles are writing in the Gospels, and you've got the need to uh, get that word out. So what happens early on? What happens is the New Testament, to the New Testament as it begins to grow? Well, uh, first people start making translations. Uh, we have very early uh, evidence that uh, the, the New Testament was translated into dozens of different languages so that the Gospel could be spread. Now, uh, those include things like Syriac. Uh, one of the earliest, uh, Syriac is like a, a version of Aramaic. And there is a, a, a version of Aramaic, a version of the New Testament called the Peshitta, which is, uh, it is, it is a, a reliable witness to the Greek, if you know how to read both of those things and, and be able to 
to, to work that back. It, it is something that we cite as evidence of the reliability of the Greek New Testament. But you also have examples of Coptic, uh, Georgian, uh, other uh, uh, Aramaic, Latin. Uh, the, the New Testament is being translated in all kinds of different languages. Now, that should be evidence to us that translation is a good thing and that is okay, right? Like when we look at an English translation, we don't have to be like Muslims uh, who feel very strongly that if you, if you don't have the Arabic Quran, you don't have the Quran because the Quran is supposed to be Allah's literal words to us and, and, the, and the wording matters and the language matters. And so you're not supposed to translate it. I mean, you can translate it, but you have to, you have to signif- you signal and specify that this is a translation of the Quran. This is not the Holy Quran because the Holy Quran is in Arabic. We can have a New Testament that is, and an, and an Old Testament that is not in Greek and Hebrew and it is in English. Uh, and in fact, another, another evidence that translation is okay is, is the fact that even when we read the Greek, uh, we're still not reading the words of Jesus because Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic. Uh, and so even, even as we are reading Jesus' words in the Gospels, we're reading a translation of Jesus' words as the Gospel writers uh, articulated those kinds of things. And so translation is at the very foundation of our own uh, New Testament. And so it is okay. It's a good thing. And God wants it to happen. So uh, we're supposed to translate those words into languages so that people can understand. We'll get into that in a little bit. So we've got early translations, but we also have copies being made. So people started making copies of the Greek New, Te- uh, New Testament. So what were some challenges confronting these copyists? Uh, We actually are are fortunate now that we uh, all have uh, the same New Testament to the the extent that we're looking at, say, uh, uh, an ESV or an NIV or an NAS. We can all look at, I can say, turn in your Bibles to this place, and I can trust that we're all looking at the same thing uh, if we're all looking at the same version. Why? Well, because we have the printing press. Uh, We're not writing that down by hand. Uh, There are machines that carry it out for us, but early on it had to be by hand. And so all of the the frailties and all of the mistakes that you could make copying something down by hand uh, did happen and would happen. So basically you've got a bunch of copyists doing everything by hand, by candlelight, with sticks and ink. So you've got very primitive uh, uh, utensils and tools and and, uh, uh, to be able to accomplish this idea of, of transcribing an entire book, uh, uh, an epistle of Paul. I want you to think about how difficult that would be uh, for a moment. I want you to think about how difficult it would be uh, say like, turn off all the lights, light a candle, uh, put even your, 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 your New Testament, put, put just Galatians or something like that next to you and write it down letter by letter uh, in, into you know, a, a notebook or something. Uh, I think you would probably have lots of transcription mistakes if you tried to do that. I think you would, you, you would, it would be difficult uh, to be able to, to, to transmit uh, a flawless copy of Galatians uh, under the same circumstances with the kinds of utensils that they had so we could understand how there would be uh, lots of potential for errors. Also, uh, copyists had varying degrees of literacy. We oftentimes project our own uh, literacy as Americans back into uh, the first century world and just assume that everybody knew how to read and everybody would be able to pick up a letter of Paul and, and know what he said. Uh, but in fact, were, literacy was, was in the minority, the vast minority, right? So very few people had literacy like you and I enjoy literacy. That required training, it required schooling, uh, and most people didn't have that kind of thing. And that is why when you think about how the New Testament first got to churches, uh, it wasn't going to be something that was read by all people and distributed. It was going to be something that was read aloud for everybody else. So they would read aloud a letter of Paul 
read aloud a section of the Gospels. Uh, partly because they didn't have copies, but also because people weren't literate. So they had to know uh, what Paul said by reading it orally. And lastly, Greek script was very difficult to copy. Uh, this is just the function of how uh, Greek manuscripts looked back then, but I want to give you a, a picture of this. So this is what's called an unseal script. And these are the earliest witnesses that we have. So the earliest manuscripts that we have, not, not these specifically, this is just an example of, of unseal script. But they're all capital letters. So this is Greek, but it's all Greek capital letters. And notice that you don't have spacing, and you don't have punctuation. You don't have verses. Uh, you just have letters next to each other, and you have lines, and it's going across and then downward. And so think about, now, now, now go back to that exercise I just thought about with copying Galatians. Imagine if you put Galatians in all, of ca- all caps and removed all punctuation and removed all spacing and just bunched in everything together. Now try to copy it by the light of a candle at night. You know what I mean? Like, how difficult would that be, even if you're trying your best to make sure that there are no errors introduced here? Uh, think about all the errors that, that, that we could come up with, right? So um, uh, you could... If you're trying to, like, make sense out of all this, uh, you could take uh, certain words that uh, belong uh, together and separate them into two words, not knowing that, like, okay, that's not what the, 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 uh, the, the, the manuscript writer meant. Let me give you an example from English. Um, if I put in all capital letters, uh, God is nowhere and God is now here, right? Like, those, that's the exact same letters and smish them together, right? Like, and, and you're trying to say, like, I just changed the meaning. God is nowhere and God is now here, right? Like, if, if I'm trying to divide that up, how do I know? I'd have to discern from context or I'd have to use theology or I'd have to just make an executive decision, right? And so that's what they're having to do as they are copying these things down. Uh, you also get examples. I want you to see one right here. So close to the top, to the left, underneath the little kind of division sign there, you've got two things that look like T's. Those are Tau's. Okay, so uh, oftentimes what would happen is a scribe or a copyist would get to the end of a line right over there and he would see two lines that started with the same letter and his eye would skip, right? And so you would inadvertently uh, skip an entire line of text, right? Not, not wanting to uh, but, and, and not, not trying to embellish, not trying to omit anything, but just like your eye skips, right? Like that's just a natural thing that would happen. It would happen to you if you were looking at Galatians in all caps and trying to uh, trying to uh, copy it over. So what happens is copyists kept making these books with various degrees of, of mistake, error. Uh, well, errors of various kinds get introduced, obviously. What are those kinds of errors? Uh, I want to talk about a couple. Um, one, of my new, one of my New Testament professors at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, his name is Daniel Wallace. Uh, he's written about this extensively, and his job, he's also a, a, he's a Greek grammarian, and if you ever take New Testament, advanced New Testament at a, at a seminary, you'll likely look, use his book called Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. And I've, I've, uh, I've, talked to, or I've talked to people who are at several seminaries, not just Dallas Seminary where I went, but they, they use that book as the, as the standard. But not all, that's actually not he's what, what he's most famous for. What he's most famous for is he is somebody who scours the globe uh, for t- Greek New Testaments. Uh, and he, he goes all over the world. He, he, go, he finds them in, in Egypt. He finds them in, uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. He finds them in monasteries in Europe. Uh, and he goes back and he categorize, or catalogs them. Uh, and he, he says, these are more witnesses that we have to the accuracy of the, of the New Testament. But he writes, there are four kinds of errors that, gets, that get introduced. 
the first kind are errors of omission. Uh, these are spelling and nonsense errors. So these are things that we could easily look at and say, obviously, this doesn't mean anything. This is just like an I skip, or this is something that it doesn't make any sense. Obviously, the scribe meant to do this. And so uh, dropping a, a letter off of a word, where we can obviously tell what the word is, but we, uh, we see the letter is missing. Um, easily dispensed with. Also, errors that replace uh, words or phrases with synonyms or, synonyms or similar phrases. That happens a lot. Right, like it, 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 it's, it's not changing the meaning in any kind of way. It's not necessarily a spelling error, but it's replacing a, a common word or a phrase with a synonym or some kind of circumlocution to where we have a different uh, way of saying the same exact thing. Then you have errors that are meaningful but not viable. Now, Daniel Wallace explains that meaningful but not viable means that uh, this would actually change the meaning of the text uh, if, you, if, you, if you bought it. Uh, and yet it's not viable because once you look at all the textual evidence, we see that obviously this wasn't included uh, in the earliest manuscripts, and so that is a later edition. Does anybody have a King James uh, Bible or can access it really quick? Maybe on your phone? Can anybody access First uh, John chapter 5, verse 7 in the King James? First John chapter 5, verse 7 in the KJV. Anybody got it? And, and everybody else, you can look at, say, another copy. You can look at the ESV and, 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 and see the same thing, because you're going you're gonna to see different things. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in the King James. Yes, Emily, loud voice. Okay. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, Father the, Son, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three bear witness together. Is that, is that, did I get that? These three are one. These three are one, right? So read that, and it's, man, a clear Trinitarian uh, passage, right? Like, you, you see that, and you say, oh my gosh, how could anybody doubt the Trinity? It's almost saying it uh, right there. Uh, does anybody have 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in another version? Say the ESV or, or something? Go ahead. That's it, right? Okay, so big difference, right? So you've got uh, a, and so what we now know, so when, when, they, when they took the Greek text that was used to make the King James Version of the Bible, they used a, a, a group of manuscripts called the Textus Receptus. It's, it's based on less than 20 uh, Greek manuscripts that were, most of them later date. Uh, they're not the earliest, they're not the best manuscripts, I don't, I don't mean to throw shade at the King James if that's the kind of Bible that you like to use, but uh, basically the, the basis for the English King James uh, was based on these older uh, texts. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, as we just read in the King James, is what's called the, the comma Johannine, right? Like it is a special passage that people have referenced that like, wow, that looks like a Trinitarian passage. Only problem is that doesn't turn up anywhere in any Greek manuscript before the 15th century. So we go 1,500 years before we see that in a Greek manuscript anywhere. And rumor has it that Erasmus, the guy who developed the Textus Receptus and put together this kind of thing, uh, may have just inserted it uh, because it was maybe in some marginal notes and some other older Greek manuscript and that kind of thing. And so uh, what happens is you, you basically just have the invention of this kind of very Trinitarian uh, little piece of text, and it gets inserted into 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. Now, it is, it is, it is meaningful but it is not viable because once you do a little homework, you, you figure out it shouldn't be there. Uh, 
there's a fourth kind of error that gets introduced, and that is uh, errors that are both meaningful and viable. Now, Dan Wallace points out that this is far less than 1% of all of the variations, all of the, the variants in the Greek New Testament. Less than 1% are both meaningful and viable. By meaningful and viable, I mean like it, it changes the meaning of a passage completely, uh, and it's viable in that there is at least some early witnesses so that we have to reckon with it and say like, okay, is this actually what the original author wrote? How do we deal with that kind of thing? Um, can you guys, uh, maybe a group, let's ha- have these folks over here turn to, first, or turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, starting in verse 53. And this group over here, look at cha- uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 9. And we're actually not going to have to read those. I just want to show you what it, what it says there in your Bibles. John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. You don't have to start there. I just want you to tell me what it says, like right below there, because there's going to be a little parenthetical statement. And then Mark chapter 16, right before verse 9. What, is, what does John say? Go ahead. Okay, and what is that, what is that passage, 753 through 811? What, what, is that, what is that story? All right, the woman caught in adultery, the cast the first stone, right? Like, that's a, that's a beloved, like, really important passage that a lot of people, like, look at, and they say, books are written about that passage. And, 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 uh, and a matter of fact, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, uh, that, is, that is like a smack dab in the middle of the movie. It's a story that they kind of reckon at Jesus. They're flashing back and Jesus is like writing on the ground and telling everybody to cast the first stone. You see all these rocks fall to the ground. Like it's, it is a meaningful, famous, one of the most famous passages about Jesus. And yet uh, in the ESV and in just about every modern translation, you're going to have a parenthetical statement that says the earliest and best manuscripts do not have that uh, passage. What about Mark chapter 16? Starting in, in nine, right before nine. Yes. Yep. Or is it? Okay. Uh, so, uh, chapter 16, verses nine through 20, what happens there? Well, you have all of these teachings from Jesus about uh, what are the interesting things? What, can, can, you, can you remember the interesting teaching that, that, that goes on in chapter 16, verses nine through 20? Snakes, right? Anybody been to Appalachia, right? Like where, where you have uh, snake handling, right? Like that is, a, that is, I mean, have you ever seen video? Like go home after this and go, go YouTube Appalachian snake handling, okay? And like you will, you will see uh, some congregations where they're, they're often very small, often is about as big as the stage, it, it seems. And you will see people uh, often of a Pentecostal, very charismatic persuasion, Jumping up and down, singing, dancing, and pulling out rattlesnakes uh, to uh, mess with them, right? Like to, to, to dance around with them, to wear them over their neck, to, to talk to them. Um, and so you've got an entire subculture, a religious subculture of, of snake handlers built up around these, this passage in Mark that uh, modern day scholars of the New Testament suggest that it, it maybe shouldn't be there. Right, like that the earliest and best manuscripts don't actually have that. Now, it's interesting that we still include those passages. We still include John. We still include Mark. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But um, what, do, what, do, what does it mean 
when they say things like earliest and be best manuscripts, uh, I want to... I want to pull back the curtain for you guys a little bit, and you guys can see how the sausage gets made and, 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 and how they make decisions about this. What I want to show you guys is this is a Greek New Testament. And I'll pass this around. It's a little bit frail uh, and worn because uh, it, it, uh, it got used a bit. Uh, so I don't rip it apart like a phone book. But um, what, what you'd see if you, if you look in this Greek New Testament, and I you know, you might, might not be able to make heads or tails of, of the actual Greek parts of that. But what you'll see is something similar to this. So this is, uh, that is what's called an eclectic text. So an eclectic text is, is a text that has been uh, created. That's the Nestle All in 26 uh, version. So uh, it's made by the United Bible Society. Uh, and what you have is a, a group of scholars, of New Testament scholars, uh, who get together and they compare Greek uh, variants uh, throughout the New Testament. And they decide on which ones are the most appropriate, which ones are the most reliable readings. Uh, and so they put that together and they actually show their work. That's, that's the cool thing about this. So when you look at your ESV, that is based on an eclectic text like you hold in your hands right there. When you look at your NIV, when you look at your NAS, when you look at... Uh, a, an RSV, right, like all of these different versions, translations, you're looking at a, a Bible that has been, or a New Testament that has been based on an eclectic text where people have made decisions about which variants uh, are the ones that are the most reliable. So up here you see the Greek text of the woman caught in adultery, and over here you see a parenthetical statement uh, with some information. So I want to give you some, some heads up about where's this information. What are these reliable Witnesses. What are these early uh, manuscript witnesses that they're talking about that, that don't have uh, the earliest uh, group? So here, here's, here's something I'll, I'll point out real quick. So you've got 753 to 811. They give it a grade. And the grade is A. And by this they mean they are absolutely certain. <laughs> like So this, this group of Bible scholars are absolutely certain that you should omit 753 through 811. This is the decision they're making, and they're making it based on these manuscript witnesses. And so you see some letters here and some numbers. I want to point out what those are. So these are different kinds of, of manuscript witnesses that we have uh, to the New Testament. So the first kind are what's called papyri. And these are the oldest uh, copies of the New Testament that we have. They're made with a, a special kind of paper that's made from like tree bark, or ba basically the board out insides of a tree that's been mashed flat and made into paper. Uh, we, most of what we have in terms of papyri are fragments, and it's not very good, but we do have some papyri that we can read. Uh, and so uh, what they mean is the earliest papyri that we have that have John on them that we know don't have this. They omit it. So they have, they're pointing to the papyri that we, we have as earlier witnesses. The next thing we have are unseal uh, texts. Unseals are what I showed you before, these all capital letter uh, uh, manuscripts. Oftentimes, these are in codices, and what you see here, you see a, a Hebrew Aleph, uh, the Sibmel. You see an A and a B and a C, and these are unsealed witnesses. These are the best two witnesses that we have, A and B. That is uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Uh, both of these were discovered in the 1800s uh, in monasteries. There was a guy named Tischendorf, Ludwig von Tischendorf, who is uh, basically scouring the the globe for these texts, and he, he comes upon a, uh, a couple of monasteries where these, uh, where these manuscripts are found. And I mean, these, these are the greatest 
uh, codices that we have. One is in the Vatican and the other one is in London. I think in a museum in London that you can, you can, you can see. Um, but they are almost completely of the New Testament. They're the earliest uh, uh, massive codices that we, we have. And they're from about the 300s. Uh, so that's, that's pretty early. We also have what's called minuscule texts. So these are a little bit later. What you have in the unseals, you have very like early witnesses that are all like block texts. Unseal or minuscules are like this. They're written, they look more like that. So they're not like the block letters with no punctuation and no spacing. Uh, they're more like what you see up here. So those are minuscule texts. So also the earliest minuscule texts that we have. Uh, those are, so the major witnesses, we also have minor witnesses. Other ancient translations. Remember I talked about translations like Syriac. Here's the abbreviation for Syriac. Uh, we also see, uh, let's see, we also see Coptic, Armenian, Georgian, uh, Slavic, right? The earliest witnesses also lack this, uh, this uh, or the earliest like translation also lack that passage. The ancient church fathers, it points to something called the Diatessaron origin, Chris, John Chrysostom, Tertullian, Cyprian, right? Like in their passages where they, where they talk about John, they also don't have uh, this passage in it. And lastly, Greek lectionaries. Uh, we're pointing to it, it says L-E-C-T right there. So earliest Greek lectionaries. That is, these are, uh, Greek lectionaries are like liturgies, like little uh, programs or, or uh, things that people would use for worship at the time. And they oftentimes repeat like whole texts of the New Testament. And so these also lack uh, this passage in John. So when, when it says the earliest and best manuscripts do not have this passage, this is what they're pointing to. They're doing their homework right here. So all of this is the evidence that they're pointing to and saying, this shouldn't be uh, in, in, this, in this Bible, right? Like, we still keep it in there because of tradition. We still keep it in there because it's, meaning, it's personally meaningful to people. Uh, and yet, if we're trying to get to the, the core of, like, what the gospel writer of John uh, actually had in there, probably doesn't belong. And it actually, uh, they, again, they do their homework and they actually show which manuscripts include uh, that passage. Uh, other manuscripts have uh, this passage about the adulterous woman in different parts. Some of them in Luke, some of them in, 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 uh, in other places in John. They kind of hop around. Uh, and so basically, like, what's going on? When people have made decisions, uh, scholars uh, who care very much to, to, to get to the, the, the kernel of what is supposed to be there in that New Testament, uh, have gone to great lengths to compare all of this manuscript evidence so that we know exactly what is supposed to be in that New Testament. And it's quite reliable. So I, I, don't, I don't mean to show you this to, to, to throw into question uh, the reliability of our, of our New Testament. Like I said, uh, stuff like this that is meaningful and viable uh, is less than 1% of all of the variants that we have, right? Like most of the stuff is easily dispensed with or it's unimportant. So it, it shouldn't cause you to question the reliability of the New Testament. This is just kind of understanding really how, how that gets put together. Okay, so how do we determine which manuscripts have the best readings? I spoke about this a little bit last week, but I want to uh, hit on it a little bit more. First, uh, scholars are going to give priority uh, to the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. So we're looking at the papyri first. Uh, we're also looking at early unsealed texts like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. These are from like the 200s. Sometimes it's even in the 100s. Uh, and you've got in the 300s there. Also, we follow a couple of rules. That is, the first is the shorter reading is to be preferred because copyists would have been more tempted to elaborate or add. If you're a copyist, uh, you're not going to, and you're copying down the, the epistle, Paul's epistle to uh, the Romans, 
you're not going to say, ah, we don't need that, right? Like, let's get rid of that part, right? Like, you're, you're tempted to add, to, to, to make up for, to embellish, or something like that. And lastly, the more difficult reading, uh, grammatically or theologically, is to be preferred. Copyists would have had, been more tempted to smooth out grammatical or theologically difficult passages. Uh, and that makes sense. So working back in these ways, trusting in like the earliest and best manuscripts that we have, and also just applying some what's called reasoned eclecticism, like going in and deciding, okay, this makes sense. This doesn't make, this shouldn't be here. This makes more sense. I can see a scribe adding this. Uh, or oftentimes you can actually compare it. So what I just uh, told you about the comma Johannine, like that, that verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in the King James, uh, we have evidence that, that the earliest examples of that passage where it talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, the earliest manuscripts that have that little passage, are it's in a marginal note, right? So it's not actually in the text. So somewhere along, so it's been kept, it's like somebody just, so basically a scribe or a copy has said uh, on the margin, hey, I've heard this is another reading, or uh, somebody said this should belong here, but they didn't actually insert it in the text. And later on, a copy says, well, I'll just insert that in there. And so you can see the progression of how that gets plugged into that passage. Uh, but uh, like I said, easily recognized, easily dispensed with, and, and in that particular passage, not viable. All right, so what about translation? Um, this is actually something I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by. Um, Professionally and, and as a sociologist, I think one of my next big projects will be a, a book about uh, translation. Not just translation in, in ancient times, but how Bible translations these days, today, in contemporary society get uh, promoted, marketed, uh, put together. The decisions that go into that kind of thing, it's very sociological. I mean, there's a lot of like, people involved in the process, uh, and so I'm fascinated by that. But there's a whole history. So starting in the 300s, the Western Church, that is the Catholic, what we know as the Catholic Church, uh, uh, asks Jerome, who is a scholar uh, and a very bright, uh, devout person, to translate the entire Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that they have possession of into Latin. And that remains the dominant and authoritative text in the Catholic Church uh, up until the 1600s, up until the King James, right? Like, uh, and and, that, they're, and that, that people get... Uh, opportunities in the Catholic Church to utilize a, a vernacular uh, version of the Bible. So the Vulgate becomes dominant. It's really the only text that you're allowed to use, and certainly the only text that you could use in a worship service, the Latin Vulgate. Um, later on, however, and we do have examples, uh, when, when you think of English translations of the Bible, Wycliffe comes to mind, uh, Tyndale comes to mind. We actually do have examples of Old English uh, translations, not entire copies of the New Testament, but uh, little pieces and snippets of the New Testament were being translated into Old English as early as the 7th century. But in the mid-1300s, so we haven't even started the Protestant Reformation yet, you've got a, a Christian named John Wycliffe uh, who becomes disgusted with uh, the papacy and the corruption of the Catholic Church. He thinks the, the, the monasteries are irredeemably corrupt uh, and he believes the word of God is the only way that we can truly know what God's will is. And if that's the only way, we can, not, not, through, not through like tradition, certainly not through the religious authorities who he thought were all corrupt. Uh, so therefore, we need to uh, have a translation uh, of the Bible in English where, we can, where, where people can read it and, and understand it for themselves as literacy was increasing at the time. 
So he doesn't actually translate the whole thing himself, uh, and, and, and some people even question how much of, of, of the Wycliffe Bible he actually did translate. Tradition says that he, he translated this English Bible. He did it from the Vulgate, so he wasn't translating from the Greek and the Hebrew. He was translating from the Vulgate into English, but it was so that people would have a vernacular Bible in their own uh, language. In the early 1500s, we've got Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther doesn't speak English, but he translates... Uh, he's the first to translate from the Greek and the Hebrew into German. Again, for the same reason as Wycliffe. He believes that uh, the word of God is necessary for us to know God, for us to know God's will for us, and we can't have it mediated through priests and popes. And so uh, Martin Luther spends years translating uh, the Greek and Hebrew uh, uh, manuscripts into German so that he can put out a uh, German Bible. Now, lastly, we have shortly after Martin Luther, and actually probably influenced by Martin Luther in the early 1520s, you've got William Tyndale, who is the first to translate from Greek uh, and Hebrew into uh, English. And so that is our first example of an English Bible fully translated. Now, Tyndale got all of the, old, uh, all of the New Testament translated and probably half of the Old Testament before he was martyred. Uh, so he was, uh, uh, he was condemned as a heretic, uh, betrayed, uh, and... Uh, burned at the stake, and he actually, I mean, it was kind of, it's kind of a hoary death. Like, he, he was uh, tied to a stake and strangled there, and then burned, uh, and then they did various things with his body, as they, as they did, to kind of publicly symbolize, like, this is what we do to people who, uh, I guess, translate the Bible. But, like, this is, this is what we do to people who, are, who, who, who fly in the face of papal authority. Uh, and so Tyndale's, but Tyndale's uh, book was completed, and, uh, and it was uh, completed into something that's called the Great Bible, uh, by a guy named Miles Coverdale. And Coverdale puts this out, and this is uh, such an influential Bible. It influences other versions, something we call the Geneva Bible, uh, something that's called the Dewey Rames Bible that ends up being the Catholic version of the New Testament. Uh, but ultimately, that even influences the King James Bible. I was reading today, in fact, that um, they were saying Tyndale's version makes up about 70 to 80% of the King James. Uh, and so uh, when you're reading the King James, I mean, you're almost reading, uh, for the most part, like especially in the New Testament, you're reading so, so much of what is influenced by uh, William Tyndale, this godly guy who is uh, desperate to translate the Bible into English. So uh, in the early 1600s, we have King James who commissions a new English translation, mostly for political reasons, not because he's so pious. Uh, in fact, uh, King James is one of his, one of his goals there was to suppress political dissent. So what you had is the most popular version of the Bible at the time was something called the Geneva Bible. It was the Bible being used by the Puritans. Uh, it was the Bible used by Shakespeare. Uh, and what was going on in the Geneva Bible is you had the, the, the not the invention, but you had the, the use of marginal notes that were added for commentary. Uh, and so in the Geneva Bible, the, whoever put that together uh, was inserting commentary that was often very political in strategic places. Uh, and so uh, references to the whore of Babylon would get a marginal note like, obviously the Pope, you know, like, uh, or, or, or references to like uh, disobeying uh, kings and royalty, like when, um, when Miriam or when, the, when uh, Moses uh, is found in the river and, you know, there, there's this uh, mandate that all of these young Jews are supposed to be killed. Uh, and the, the servant, the Hebrew servant, disobeys the king. 
And, you know, and it's, and it's a good thing. You get a, a marginal note saying, like, it's fine to disobey royalty when, you know, when they're obviously not godly and this is good. You know, so King James wanted to wipe all that stuff out. That was rule number one. Like, we're going to retranslate. We're going to have a king. We're going to put together this, this commissioned Bible and no marginal notes. Uh, you, you can't add any kind of commentary and that kind of thing, really, because, again, it's for political reasons. He's trying to unify the Christian world. And lastly, the KJV becomes the basis for uh, later translations, the Revised Version, the American Standard Bible, later the Revised Standard Version, and even our uh, very own beloved English Standard Version. So what translations do people use now? I want to get into this, and we'll kind of talk about this. Uh, I'm a sociologist. I've got to come at you with some data. All right, so let's look at some data. Uh, this is from uh, the 2012 General Social Survey, a large survey of Americans, and this is on uh, what translation of the Bible do you read? 56%, well over half, say King James. Now, this is in 2012, right? So not, not too long ago, about six years ago. So the vast majority say King James, the next after, NIV, right? Now, if you're looking at different denominations, you get a little bit of variation here, right? Like, and so in King James, in King James obviously is going to be representing a whole lot of conservative Protestants, uh, Pentecostals, uh, just about every, everybody in like the historically like black church, going to be largely King James, and you're going to get a little more, with evangelical circles, you're going to get more NIV. Uh, and then you've got the ESV, which is actually very small at the time, 2012, it's less than a percent. Uh, now, this wasn't a ton of people, but uh, you'll see the ESV's influence is about to grow. This is uh, from the National Congregation Study in 2012. I love the National Congregation Study because it's one of the only surveys that we have that covers churches, not people. Most surveys that I would show you are, are surveys of individual people asking what you do. The National Congregation Study actually asks churches, what do you guys do as an organization? And so the congregations that said, hey, we actually have Bibles read in the service, which is well over 90% of congregations, they ask which, which version gets read aloud in church services. Again, over a third, KJV, by far the most dominant. After that, you've got 17%, the NIV. Uh, NKJV, so you've got the New King James Version, 7.1%. The NRSV, and you've got the ESV making about 2.3%. Again, this is about 2012, so the ESV is, is just... The ESV has been around since about 2000, but uh, it has only recently started to really spike in terms of its influence uh, because of some innovations on the part of uh, uh, Crossway, I think. Lastly, this is what translates and gets put into pews or, or uh, underneath chairs. So underneath your chairs, you've got a bunch of ESVs. What do other people say? What do other churches say? Uh, again, well over, uh, well over a third, uh, getting near a half, say KJV. Over a quarter, say NIV. About 2%, say ESV. And then you've got some other things mixed in there. Now, this is some other data. Now, let's look at some trends. Um, this is uh, something, a uh, survey since 2011, Barna Group has partnered with the American Bible Society to do a bunch of these studies, and I've compiled them together and, and looked at some of the data on those. And they basically ask which Bible, which version of the Bible, or which translation do you read? And they, I think they also ask what versions do you, like, uh, 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 teach from or those kinds of things. You see the King James starts in 2011 about 45%, consistent with what we saw in 2012, but it is going down. It's losing market share in terms of uh, in what, what people are, losing, are using. NIV right here, you've got about the same 10%, uh, between 10 and 15%. Now look what's going on with the ESV. You've got about 3%, again, consistent with what we saw with 2012 data. But this is going consistently up to where it's almost 10% uh, 
uh, over here, right? Like, so if you're looking at percentage growth, the ESV is actually growing pretty fast. Let me give you another example of, of why we might know that this is the case. Uh, this is uh, data from Google Search. So if you guys ever use Google Search, it's actually a pretty fascinating resource to, to use. Uh, Google Search, you basically can just type in the frequency of different searches, how often people go for certain code words and that kind of thing. So this is people searching for ESV and NIV from 2004 when they started collecting Google Search data to 2018. We see searches for ESV in the United States uh, going up massively, NIV going down a bit, uh, right? So they're kind of uh, uh, not, not meaning, and I'm not saying like the NIV is still used uh, a lot more often than the ESV, and yet uh, kind of inquiries or requests, this actually uh, works similarly if you just look at English Standard Version, New International Version, so it's not just the... The, uh, it's not just the, the, the acronyms. Also, um, just FYI, if you, if you put K KJV in there, uh, it blows both of them away. <laughs> like, uh, the differences look so small. KJV is so, is so large in terms of what people are searching for. So the KJV really, you can't beat the king. I mean, it's still, it's, it, it is still the dominant uh, text uh, that translation that people use. Okay, so how to think about Bible translations. Um, I want to give you guys a little bit of... Uh, of insight into how these things are put together and how to think about them and maybe how to think about which translation you want to use. Um, you can think of translations in terms of readability, and that is very loose and uh, paraphrastic uh, and very literal. So over here you've got what's called an interlinear. An interlinear Bible is basically just like you've got the Greek right there and you've got like an English translation beneath it. Uh, so it's, it's very wooden. It's not even a translation, really. It's just translating little words. And over here, you've got something like the message, which is just paraphrasing uh, everything. Uh, and everything in between. You've got the ESV and the NAS. NAS is the most literal that I'm aware of. Uh, the ESV is, is also quite literal, but not quite as literal as the NAS. Over on the other side, you've got New Living Translation. NIV is around the middle. It's kind of paraphrastic, and it's also a little bit It's more literal than, say, something like the New Living Translation. But does most literal or word for word always mean most accurate? Before you say like, well, I want the most literal, I want the most literal possible uh, Bible because if God said it, I want it, right? Like word for word. That doesn't always make for accuracy. It doesn't even make for readability either. So what I've done here is uh, this is from Matthew chapter 1. This is Greek from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And I've just reproduced this because it's uh, an interesting example. Let's read this. So this is, a, this is literal, okay? This is as, as literal as I could make it. The now of Jesus Christ's birth thus was, having been betrothed, the mother his Mary to Joseph, before to come together them, she was found in the belly, having from spirit holy. Joseph, now the husband of her, righteous was, and not wishing her to disgrace publicly, intentioned privately, uh, send her away. Right? So that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, that's literal, uh, that's word for word. It's as word for word as I could make it. Uh, and yet, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So a couple of things I want to point out. Uh, when you're thinking about translation, uh, language differs in terms of word order. It, it differs in terms of uh, whether or not an article like the is actually pronounced, whether it's included or whether it signifies something else. And over here, what I've highlighted, the now of Jesus' birth was, like we've got to change around the word order. So already, we're having to do some uh, twisting and turning to oh, just to make it readable English, to, to, to change it over into language. But also you have to deal with idiom. Idiom meaning uh, it, is, it is idiomatic. It is something that Greeks would say, like to say you're pregnant is that you have 
in the belly, right? Like it is, you have in gastry, in, in, in the womb. Uh, literally, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but if you know that that means pregnant, like it basically means like she, she had a bun in the oven. She had Jesus uh, in her belly, right? Like that's what's going on. And so you have to use idiom to be able to, change, to translate and make sense. So word for word uh, is a really bad kind of way to talk about translation because no translation is really word for word. Decisions have to be made. Uh, now you've got some that are closer to like maybe a, a wooden or rigid translation like I've just shown you and some that get further away from it. But decisions have to be made nonetheless. Okay. Also have to, decisions have to be made about theology. Uh, not just about grammar. So what I've just showed you so far is like grammar and just kind of linguistic idiom. But I want to show you a couple. I wanna, let's talk about some, some decisions that would have to be made theologically. Because oftentimes our theology has to shape the way we translate a certain passage. So let me give you an example. Romans 3.22, famous passage where, where Paul says, uh, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law uh, has been seen. Apart where, where the law of the prophets testify, this righteousness from God comes through pistis Yesu Christu uh, to all who believe there is no difference, right? So how do we translate that? Well, most of you, if you have an ESV, it says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Pistis, this faith, Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But actually, that can work another way. So that's, that's what, what would be called a, 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 an, a, a subjective use of this, of this kind of construction. If you make it objective, right, if you're talking about, it, it could also, basically, you could also say, this righteousness from God comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ uh, to all who believe. Right? Like, now, both the ways you translate that, it still makes sense in gospel terms. Right? Like it, there are right, the righteousness from God does th- come through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Like, that's true. Jesus was faithful and he lived a righteous life. And actually, uh, we get Im- imputed that righteousness. That's the whole point of the passage. And so you could translate it. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Both of those work grammatically. And different versions of the Bible now translate that in different ways. So the ESV and several other conservative uh, evangelical texts traditionally translate it faith in Jesus Christ. But the New English translation, also translated by conservative evangelical scholars, now translates it the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So theological decisions have to be made. Let me give you another example. Paul's teachings about households in in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, in your ESV, they, they intentionally uh, put a heading uh, between verse 21 and verse 22 uh, to imply that a new idea has been, like that Paul is starting a new idea. Uh, in the Greek, that doesn't happen. There are no headings. Uh, and in fact, the very verb that is being used in verse 22, this is wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That verb submit is not in that verse at all. It's actually like several, uh, it's, What's being used is a participle that's in verse 21. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. That's the most literal way to do it. So what's, what's going on there is you've got, and, and even that, that's a participle that builds on a verb from like verse 17. Uh, so what you've got is you've got this long construction that Paul is making. And somebody has to make a decision about what this passage is saying. Now, if you divide it, at verse 22. If you divide verse 21 and 22, like Paul is ending this thought and says, by the way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, breaking the thought, uh, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. If you take it that way, if you make that translational decision, you, you basically end up with a passage that says, 
the order of the Christian household is that wives should submit to their husbands, and that's the way it goes. Uh, if you start in verse 21, and you say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you actually have what's more implied as like a mutual submission, like that wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and husbands love their wives, kind of in a way that Christ submits to the, to the, to the church in a, in, a, in a way of sacrificing himself, uh, his own uh, safety and preferences for the good and for the love of his bride. I'm not arguing for either one. I'm just saying like uh, both, those de- both those decisions are viable and different versions of the Bible make those different decisions. So you've got the NIV, the RSV, and the New Living Translation all go with the one that says uh, it starts at 21. Submit to one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. The ESV, uh, the NAS, the Holman Christian Standard all use the other. Okay, so let's, uh, let's think about Bible translation. Uh, which one should you use as we're wrapping up here? Um, so you could think about this a couple of different ways, right? Like a couple of evaluative tools. Um, one, you could, you could use, uh, and I forgot to animate that, so I'll just kind of uh, talk about it. You could choose the Bible translation according to principle. That is, you, you say, like, I want the most literal translation possible. Uh, because I want whatever God says, uh, I want to hear, and I, do, I want the bare minimum amount of like inserted paraphrases and uh, different ways of spinning something. I want it as literal as I can get it. And so if that's the case, you choose something like the NAS, which is the most literal. Also, an ESV is good. An ESV is, is, is a very literal uh, translation, as is a revised standard version, if you can get a hold of one of those. They're out of print now, but they are kind of classic and very literal. The ESV is actually, ba- it's a revision of the uh, RSV. Uh, and so it's, it's also a very good translation. Uh, you could also choose according to specific need or occasion. We are, in America, we have so many like options. Like you have on your phone every possible Bible, right? Like every English translation. And so you could make a decision on, and, and say, I, I, I want to study something. I want to pick apart an epistle right now. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to dive into the most literal English translation I can get because I want, I want to know how Paul structured his argument. I want to know, like, I want to know the clauses uh, and, and as close as possible to the literal words. And that, that could be helpful. So, again, NAS might be helpful there. But you could say, uh, right now I'm reading through the Bible. Like, I'm just trying to enjoy and get something devotional out of this. And in that case, the NIV or the, the NAS might not be very good because it's very wooden. It's difficult to read. It doesn't flow very well. ESV is still very readable. But you could also say, like, uh, I actually, in the mornings, uh, I get up and I read the Bible every day. It's kind of I'm reading through the Bible this year. And as I read, through, I'm reading through an NIV. Uh, and then NIV, I use the NIV because I, I, that's what I memorized when I, was, when I first became a Christian and in college. Uh, I memorized the NIV. It, it makes sense to me. Uh, I don't want to mess up my scripture memory. And so uh, I'm going to keep going with the NIV, or at least in my, in my reading. Um, but you could also uh, choose according to community. Now, what I do, most of the verses that I've thrown up up here, or what I would use in a sermon, uh, is going to be ESV. Is it because I think the ESV is so superior to other translations? No, but it's, it's, the, it's the one that you guys have in your pews, and it's the one that most of us are using. And so I, I gladly use the ESV. It's a great, it's a great translation, right? Like, I, I gladly use it. Uh, but that is more of a submission to the community kind of decision, right? Like, and to say, everybody else is reading the ESV, why not? It's a good translation. Let's do that. Bottom line, my recommendation uh, choose whichever mainstream version you'll actually read and apply to your life. So uh, I don't have a best translation uh, piece of advice there. 
my, my best advice really is to choose whichever mainstream, and I've, I've, I've put asterisks there, uh, because not every, like, the New World Translation translated by Jehovah's Witnesses is not a mainstream version of the Bible. They, that would be a heretical version of the Bible that denies the deity of Christ, okay? So uh, don't read a New World Translation and be like, Sam said any version would be fine. Like, that's, that's not what I'm saying. A mainstream evangelical version of the Bible that is orthodox uh, and not heresy uh, you should read. Whichever one that you will read, you will read and you will apply to your life, right? Because that is, I mean, that's what we're trying to do. Like, it's not about like comparing who has the most literal Bible or who has the best translation or who has the, I mean, I've been in circles where that's actually happening. And maybe you heard like, oh, you use the, the, uh, the NIV, the nearly inspired version, you know, the, or, or some kind of cute like diss on your, on, on, on your Bible to say that my version is better. That's ridiculous, right? Like, it's, it's, it's silly because uh, even to critique, like, I've heard pastors from up front uh, say, like, well, I really don't like the Greek in this one. I think the translator, like, even that to me seems a little bit absurd uh, that pastors that took, like, uh, two classes of Greek 30 years ago are, are going are gonna to trump a whole committee of professional exegetes uh, who came together and made decisions about what, what belonged and how, how that was supposed to work. Like, that, that doesn't exactly, like, make a lot of sense. And so uh, my advice uh, is, is use the mainstream version of the Bible that you will read and that you will love and that brings you to Jesus uh, and that you will apply to your life. Right? I think that's the best you can do. Uh, is there any, are there any questions about what I've talked about so far? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, there's a there's a reader's version of the ESV. Yeah, which is really it's it's beautiful. It's it's a really nice, uh, which is actually kind of funny. Like uh, the early like we don't have verses and headings and that kind of stuff. Versification doesn't happen until after the Reformation. A guy named Stephanus uh, puts that in there. He puts these verses in there, and it changes. I mean, it, it revolutionizes the way we do the Bible. I mean, like would we know? Would we would we memorize scripture? like we do now, if we didn't have, if we couldn't break it up into meaningful, like, chunks and say, like, chapter 3, verse 2, uh, we would just kind of pick little passages, like, I think Paul says somewhere in, in, in that, right? So, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, readers, ESV readers version is actually really good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ashley? I, yeah, I think, I think it is. I, I don't... Gosh, I, I think I don't think anything in the message is like heretical or off base that I that I'm aware of, right? Like that's that's really bad. Um, I think the, the message is about as, as paraphrastic as it gets. Like it, it is uh, just general idea kind of thing. I wouldn't preach with it from the pulpit uh, or from up front. I wouldn't use it to teach. But if I was if I was just trying to get a general sense of like what this passage is, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, like I think he's a good Bible interpreter. Uh, and so uh, I, I would say that that would be a good thing to like read through and to just enjoy that reading time, like the New Living Translation as well, which is a bit more academic, but like the message is good too. Yeah, it's mainstream. Yes. Um, are you still like in Right. Yeah, so we, we don't really have time to go into to all of that. The old, I mean, so the Old Testament, like we have reliability of like the text of the Old Testament a lot earlier than the New Testament. We also have uh, 
uh, a lot less, like a lot, a lot fewer versions. Uh, and so, actually, the the Old Testament we use, the Hebrew Old Testament that we use, is actually not an eclectic text like we have, like I, I've passed around here. Uh, it's it's uh, often based on something called the uh, Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia, right? Like it's so the it's this one Hebrew text that we we believe is reliable, trustworthy. Uh, maybe a couple of variants are compared in that kind of thing, but we, we have a very early, reliable Hebrew Old Testament text that most Bibles use to translate. Um, and so it's got a different story than the, than the Greek New Testament, for sure. A lot less wild and woolly. Uh, and that is par- partially because Hebrew scribes were a lot better. Uh, they were faithful at like not introducing things. Like It was a sacred project for them to, to get it as accurate as possible, and they lived that out for the most part pretty faithfully. Uh, in ways that Greek scribes did not. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, so the earliest King James actually had the Apocrypha in it. So, like, it, it and the, the Apocrypha, like, Protestants historically have not re- recognized those books of the Old Testament. None of that is added to the New Testament. Like, our New Testaments are all the same. Uh, but Catholics... Uh, add books, not add, but like they include books in the Old Testament that are not part of our Old Testament. And these are books like Esdras and Maccabees uh, and those kinds of things. Um, I I said before in a previous class, I don't think anything in those books are heretical. Uh, And so uh, I don't, I don't believe they're authoritative in a sense that like if, if somebody quotes Maccabees to me, I don't, I don't consider that like a formal rebuke unless I see that like somewhere else in, in, in the Bible. Um, And yet I think they're valuable like history uh, and, they, and basically, like, what, that, what those books cover is, like, in, what's called intertestamental history between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, it covers some Jewish background that helps you know what's going on there, right? So if you want to know why we celebrate Hanukkah and that kind of stuff, like Maccabees, right? Like, so that's that kind of thing. Yes? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I think Ara- like, so Aramaic was what all of these Palestinian Jews are speaking. Uh, but Greek is also like the, the, the pidgin language. It's the, it's, the, it's the language that everybody would have to know to, to do commerce because like the whole society is dominated by Greek culture. Uh, and so Palestinian Jews like Paul, uh, 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 Jesus may have been able to, I mean, he was an uneducated carpenter, like not, and not, a, not, a, not a, an educated person like Paul. Um, who I assume spoke several different languages, uh, but you've got uh, a lot of other people. Pro- it looks like obviously the disciples were aware of Greek, but also uh, would be able to translate from Aramaic into that kind of thing. And so as they are trying to distribute their writings, they choose to go in Greek because not everybody would understand Aramaic like they would. So they actually went for maximum coverage in translating in, in Greek, which is pretty clever, right, like to, 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 to do that. Any other questions? Okay. Um, next week, I'll pray to close this in a second. Next week, we're actually is, is going to be our fifth week, and then we're going to break for a little bit. We're going to have uh, equip classes. We're not going to break from equip classes, but uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, three men's times and three women's times after, after that. So we'll take a break from the church history classes, and then we'll have three, three, three weeks where we're, we're splitting up and doing men's and women's teaching times, Okay. Um, next week will be the last week, and we're actually going to be talking about uh, the historical role of mercy ministry in the church. 
Uh, and this is a, uh, one I'm really excited about because it's a really powerful testimony. One of the reasons uh, that the early church grew so fast was its ability to sacrifice and to minister to those who were in need, those who were sick, those who were hungry, those who were poor. It was recognized by Romans, and it was also recognized by those who they were reaching out to in need. And so we'll look at the history of that. Let me pray to close and see you guys next week.